join a live Bible study from St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri. Good morning. Pastor Glenn Thomas, one of the pastors here at St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri. We welcome you to our Bible class held here in our gymnasium. Not only welcoming the people here before us, but also those listening on KFUO 850 AM in St. Louis and online at KFUO.org. Well, I feel like saying it's, it is good, Lord, to be here. We've been uh, had a different Bible class for actually the last six weeks. And I want to uh, thank publicly Dr. Jerry Bode of Concordia Seminary, also a member here at St. Paul's, for the excellent class that he provided for us over the past six weeks, really, here on the early Christians, looking at uh, what happened from the time of the book of Acts up to about 325 A.D. or so. And uh, that class was very well received here at St. Paul's, and I trust by our listeners uh, over KFUO as well. Today we're going to kind of get back into the routine, so to speak. We'll, we'll be doing what we had been doing prior to that class, and that's taking a look uh, in somewhat in depth at the lessons that are assigned for the coming Sunday. So not today's scripture lessons, but the three lessons that will be uh, featured in most of our churches on next Sunday, September 16th. Before we do that, let's begin with a word of prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning ever mindful of all your blessings to us, for the blessing of life and the blessing of eternal life through your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you also for the blessing of your word, your revealed knowledge to us about yourself and about the way to eternal life, we pray your Holy Spirit's guidance and blessing with us this day as we study that word together. May we continue to grow in our knowledge of you and of your will for us as your children. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. There are, for those here in the gymnasium, there are sheets over on the side uh, containing the scripture lessons. If you would like, you're certainly welcome to those. We're going to look, first of all, at Isaiah chapter 50, verses 4 through 10. Isaiah 50, verses 4 through 10. And I wanted to say a few words about this section before we actually get into the verses themselves. This section is one of four sections in the prophet Isaiah that are called servant songs. Servant songs. And these four sections talk about a particular servant whom God is going to send. And this servant is going to suffer. This servant is going to die. This servant is going to deliver his people. And without saying any more, you can probably figure out who this servant is. Uh, let me, for those especially at home who may be writing down, or for anybody here that wants to write down, the four servant songs in Isaiah, the first one is in Isaiah 42, verses 1 through 4. So Isaiah 42, 1 through 4. The second one is Isaiah 49, 1 through 6. So Isaiah 49, 1 through 6. The third one is the one we're going to look at today, Isaiah 50, verses 4 through 9. And the last one, I dare say, is probably the most familiar to people, especially as we get near uh, uh, Lent and Good Friday. That's Isaiah 52, verse 13, through Isaiah 53, verse 12. So 52, 13 through 53, 12. Those are the four what are called servant songs in the prophet Isaiah. 
And just a reminder, Isaiah is writing these things actually about 700 years before Christ will walk this earth. So before this servant will actually appear. Now, I mentioned that uh, the servant is Christ. One caveat, in the first servant song, Isaiah 42, the servant is actually Israel, God's son, uh, Israel, the nation. Uh, but in the other three, it is definitely Christ. Uh, you can read a lot about people saying, who is this servant? Some people are saying it's Isaiah himself or Jeremiah. No, the only person who could actually fulfill all the predictions in these servant songs is Christ himself. Let me give you just a snippet. This one is familiar to you from Isaiah 53, verse 5, and you'll understand what I'm talking about. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. Upon, his, upon him was the chastisement that makes us whole, and by his stripes we are healed. We've all heard that, right? That's one of those psalms describing that servant, okay? Uh, and... Um, he was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sins of many. That's Isaiah 53. So I think probably that fourth and last one is the most familiar to most people. Now, the thing that's unique about the psalm that we're going to look at, the third one, this is the only psalm where the servant himself is speaking. Okay? So this is the only one of these four where the servant himself is speaking about what is going to happen to him. So it's kind of unique in that way. Let's take a look at uh, 50, Isaiah 54 through 10. And this actually divides up very nicely. If you want to just take a, for those of you who are here, want to take a pen and draw lines across the verses, um, verses 4 through 4 and 5, the first two verses, talk about how the servant uh, listens and obeys. So, and that would be the father, of course. Verses 6 and 7 talk about how he is determined to fulfill his mission. Verses 8 and 9 talk about how the servant's enemies come to nothing. And then finally, the last, two verse, uh, last verse talks about how the servants uh, his, his, uh, either listen to the servant or lie down in suffering. Basically, either listen to the servant or be, be condemned. Okay? Let's read the whole thing through, and then we'll go back and take it apart in these sections. The Lord has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. But the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. 
Who among you fears the word, uh, fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. All right, so that's the entire thing. Let's go back now and remember those first two verses, verses 4 and 5, talk about how the, the servant is, is, listens and obeys, namely the voice of the Father, and is faithful. So we take the first verse, verse 4, he has given me the tongue of those who are taught. Now, that doesn't mean he's taken the tongue out of those who are taught and given it to the servant. It means the servant has a tongue that's been given to him in order to teach those who are taught. Okay? And how is that fulfilled in Christ? What did Christ do? A lot of teaching. Exactly. Teaching. Uh, time and time again, uh, he was teaching not only his disciples but those around him. So God has given him the, the tongue of those who are taught. And notice, though, it's, it's not just to teach, but that I may know how to, what? Sustain with a word him who is weary. And, you know, we think of the people that many of whom Jesus taught, and they were just overwhelmed with all the rules and regulations that they had to try and follow. Uh, thinking that by doing so, they may please God, right? And, and the, it was way over and above what, what the Word of God actually taught. The Pharisees had constructed what's called a fence around the law. And this was over 600 additional regulations and rules that the Pharisees had put in, act, in action, or had enacted, I should say, uh, in addition to the actual law of God. And so these people were just struggling under the weight of all of this uh, religious rules and regulations. And what does Jesus say? Come on to me, all you who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, right? And so he teaches the weary, it teaches, but not only just to teach, but as he says there, so that we might sustain with a word him who is weary. And that being right with God, being in a right, uh, righteousness with God, is not based upon keeping rules and regulations, but is simply, as Jesus said, come and follow me, right? Uh, he is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him, okay? So he not only has given the tongue to teach uh, those who have ears to hear, but the idea is they would sustain him with uh, give, give sustain uh, with a word those who are weary. Then next morning by morning he awakens, he awakens my ear uh, to hear as those who are taught. So again, he's, he's hearing, he's in communion with the Father. The Lord God has opened my, my ear and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. So Christ here not only hears what the Father says, but he does not rebel against it. He does not turn away from what the Father wants him to do. Now, when are some times in the earthly ministry of Christ when it, it was certainly, he was being tempted, I'll put it that way, to rebel against what the Father said and turn away from what the Father said? Because what is the Father saying? Where is he going to end up, finally? 
on a cross, right? And where are some spots, and can you think of any spots in Jesus' ministry where he was at least tempted by Satan working either directly or indirectly, maybe through people to try and turn away and rebel from the word of the Father? Where? The disciples, yeah. Uh, and you get, uh, ultimately, Judas betraying him, but yeah. The disciples wanted him to set up an earthly kingdom here, didn't they? That was their thought. And even wanted one of them to sit at his right and one on his left when he sets up his kingdom. Uh, even when right before he ascends into heaven, uh, the disciples ask him, Lord, are you going to restore the kingdom to Israel at this time? You know, after all this time with him? Okay, that's one time. Family. Yeah, the family. Remember the account where the family basically thought he was nuts? You know, we got to reel them in. Yeah. Okay. Other times. Any other times? How about after he feeds the 5,000 men, and we don't know how many women and children, with five loaves of bread and two fish, they want to come and take him to be what? Their king. In other words, set up an earthly kingdom. Don't go to the cross. Come on. Okay. Um, how about on the cross itself? Remember how the people taunted him? If you are the Son of God, come down from that cross so that we may believe, right? And so, you know, and, and there were other, well, and then there, of course there is the direct temptation of Jesus by Satan, right? After he is baptized for the 40 days out in the wilderness, right? Bow down and worship me, all the kingdoms of the world I'll give to you, and so on. Make these rocks turn into bread. So, he did not rebel against the word of the Father in spite of all the temptations he had to do so. He is the faithful servant. Okay? So that's the first two verses talking about how faithful he is in spite of, and you think about, and think about uh, also on Monday, Thursday evening, what does he pray in the garden? Father, if it's possible... Let this cup, meaning the cup of wrath and suffering to come, let it pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thy will be done, right? So in spite of everything, he is the faithful servant, right? Okay, so that's the first, the first two verses talking about how he listens and he obeys. He's faithful. Then let's look at 6 and 7 talking about how determined he is to fulfill his mission. Verse 6, I gave my back to those who strike. Well, when did that happen? When did Christ give his back to those who strike? Yeah, when he was scourged, right? Pilate had him scourged, and there were, there were other physical abuses he took at the hands of the Roman, uh, well, both the temple guard and the Roman guard. But... This scourging, we tend to casually just read over this. You know, I think there's a real cryptic phrase, Pilate had him scourged, and then we read on to whatever happens next. That was an extremely uh, painful physical experience. Uh, the, the soldiers knew how to do this to exact maximum pain. They had uh, these little uh, leather-strapped uh, tongs with a, with a handle on them, and these leather strips at the end had either metal or bone in them so that when they hit you, they dug into your skin on the back. 
And there was a regulation that they could not strike you more than 39 times, uh, the soldiers. It was felt that if they did, that put you at, at risk uh, of, of actual death. So when it, that casual little phrase, pilot had him scourged, is a lot, there's a lot more involved in that than we normally uh, would, would consider. All right, so he uh, gave his back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. We don't have an actual verse that talks about that, so a lot of uh, scholars think that that's just uh, talking about humiliation there in general. You know, that it's sort of an image for humiliation. He, he has, you know, he th he's completely helpless, and they're pulling out his beard. And um, again, think of how Christ, as the Son of God, is just passively enduring all of this. And remember what he told uh, after Peter cut off the ear of Malchus in the Garden of Gethsemane? What did he say? Don't you think I could call on legions of angels to come down? And in fact, he could have. But throughout all this, he endures it, passively endures all of this, and goes to the cross for all of us. It is just incredible when you stop and think about it, that the, the, the Son of God who is there at the very creation of the world, through whom, John says, everything was made, is passively enduring all of this for us as the faithful and obedient servant. Okay? Um, I did not, I, I, I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Well, again, where was he spit upon? After his arrest, right? By the, by, I think by both the temple guard and the Roman soldiers who mocked him as well. Uh, and again, think of that, the disgrace that he went through. Okay? Then, um, but the Lord God helps me. So the Father is going to help him, eventually vindicating him. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. In the ultimate picture, he is anything but disgraced, isn't he? This next one is kind of interesting. Therefore, I have set my face like a flint. What does that mean? What kind of image does that, uh, does that conjure up? I have set my face like a flint, like a, like a stone. Strong, rigid, right? Uh, yeah, resolute. So he is determined he is going to do this. Okay? There's one verse in the Gospel of Luke. In fact, it is talked about as the hinge verse in the Gospel of Luke. It is Luke 9.51. Luke 9.51. And it says there that Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem. In other words, from that point on, he's going, it's like he sets his face like flint here to go to Jerusalem, knowing that at Jerusalem he's going to go to the cross. And that's, that's called the hinge verse for the Gospel of Luke. You know, that's, from that point on, we got a big travel narrative that's only in Luke, and we get to the cross. So again, you can almost say Luke 9.51 is, is echoing what Isaiah wrote 700 years earlier, okay? Uh, set my face like flint, and I know that I shall that I shall not be put to shame. Okay, so that's that second section then, dealing with how he is determined to fulfill his mission. There's a sense of determination there. Now, verses eight and nine, uh, the servant's enemies come to nothing. 
He who vindicates me is near. Who would it be? Who is it that vindicates the Son? The Father, right? And he's going to vindicate him because Christ does exactly the Father's will, right? I have come not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And that will is that he goes to the cross, that he takes the sin of the world on himself. He's eventually going to be vindicated by the Father when he's resurrected, when he rises from the dead. So, he who vindicates me is near. The Father, in other words, is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. So what, he's almost defiant here, isn't he? That he who vindicates me is near, who's going to condemn me? This should sound very similar to you to Romans chapter 8, where Paul writes, who will bring a charge against God's elect, right? It's the very same kind of defiance of the adversary and of evil, ultimately, of Satan. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. So the vindicator is the one who, you know, publicly justifies or declares righteous uh, the, the person. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. So again, a, a confident resolve, confident of his victory. Verse 9, Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who will declare me guilty? Now, there's kind of an interesting play here. On the one hand, we could say, is Christ guilty of anything in and of himself? No, he is completely righteous, completely innocent, sinless son of God. Is there another sense in which he's guilty of everything? Only indirectly, right? Because the Father imputes or puts onto Christ the sins of the world. So on the one hand, he is the innocent, righteous son of God there on the cross and is totally innocent and righteous. On the other hand, he is the face of sin on that cross because it is put on him. It's what Luther called the great exchange that takes place. Christ, the innocent one, takes upon himself all the sin of the world. We, the sinful people, in exchange, get what? The righteousness of Christ put on us as a result. It's the great exchange that Luther talked about. and it's a, it's, He called it a glorious exchange. It is for us, right? Our sin goes on to him, his righteousness goes on to us as a result. And that's, so there's kind of a, a both and that's, that's taking place here. Uh, Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment, the moth will eat them up. So there's the defeat of his enemies. Uh, they kind of wear out like a garment, you know, like you get the picture of an old moth-ridden garment with holes in it. Uh, that's a, just an image for the enemies that he will face. And then finally, verse 10, uh, who among you fears the Lord? You can also translate that word fears, worship. So worships the Lord or fears the Lord, obeys the voice of his servant. Uh, you know, you can almost hear an echo there when you're hearing his voice. Remember where Jesus says in John chapter 10, my sheep, what? Hear my voice, right? And I know them, they follow me. I give them eternal life, they shall never perish, and no one can snatch them out of my hand. And, the, you know, again, the, the idea of, of obeying the voice of the servant, or uh, hearing the voice of the servant. Uh, Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord 
and rely on his God. Who is it that walks in darkness? Who is he talking about there? All of us, right? In a sinful world, we're all kind of walking in darkness. And again, you can almost uh, hear the allusions to John talking about uh, light and darkness, the light of the world, Jesus Christ, who's come into the darkness of this world, okay? All right, so as I say, this is the third of the four servant song songs of the prophet Isaiah, and this one is unique because here we actually have the servant himself, Jesus Christ, talking uh, in the first person uh, to all of us, okay? All right, let me stop there before we go on. Any comments, questions? Anything? All right, let's go on then. We're going to uh, just take these in order today. Uh, we'll go to the book of James now, and James chapter 3. James is the epistle lesson for today in church as well, where James talks about not showing favoritism between uh, those who are wealthy and rich and those who are poor and showing, uh, again, a, a favoritism. Here, he's going to talk about the tongue, the use of the tongue. And uh, some, pretty, uh, some pretty harsh words, perhaps. Uh, let's read through the whole thing first, and then we'll go back and, and take it apart again. Uh, so James 3, starting at verse 1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. For the same mouth come blessing and cursing, my brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. All right. So some rather harsh words here about the tongue. And you can almost see that James is writing with a particular incident or problem, I should say, particular problem in mind, uh, and that is the use of the tongue. Now, let's get into this, and I'm going to have, going to have some discussion here as we do. First of all, he says, not many of you should become teachers, and what's his reason that not many of you should become teachers? Held to a higher standard, okay? And uh, first of all, teach, teacher seems to have been a uh, particular office. Uh, 
in the early church, and certainly pastors, uh, those uh, they're called elders or overseers, uh, were teachers also. But, you know, this is something we probably don't say enough about. Why? Remember Jesus saying that, uh, Woe to any of you who causes one of these little ones of mine to stumble. It would be better for him that a millstone be tied around his neck and he be thrown into the sea. Right? So Jesus kind of sets the tone for this also in saying how, uh, you know, how uh, terrible it is when a teacher leads someone astray. Now, we might, let's just stop and ask ourselves, why is this such an important thing? Why is what is taught and preached such an important thing and those who do it held to a higher standard? What's, what's at stake here, perhaps? Yes, that, that people's salvation can actually be impacted by this, right? And if, if a preacher, or a teacher for that matter, is teaching something other than salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, it actually can be leading people away from their salvation rather than toward their salvation. And this is why this is so important. It's not just that, you know, you want to be right when somebody else is wrong. That's, that's what you do. But, I mean, it, it, the main point here is salvation can be hanging in the balance here in some of these cases. And so they will be held to a higher standard, and, and rightly so. And that's, I should say, this is not only with regard to what is taught, but pastors also, when you read, for example, in 1 Timothy 3, are held to a higher standard in terms of who should actually hold that office. And it doesn't mean that their sins aren't forgiven, but there's a higher standard in Scripture, and that it's not only for what is taught, but it's for their conduct and, and their, their life. Because, again, it can actually have an effect of turning people away from their salvation. So this is, this is not unimportant here. It is very important. All right, now, uh, verse 2, he says, you know, we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone, now he's going to lead into his topic here of the tongue. If anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man. In other words, what's the implication? We all stumble, right? We all stumble. So, and, and it is able to bridle his whole body. So... If you can, if you can uh, uh, bridle what, he, what you say completely perfectly, then you, you are, are perfect. You're, you have a, you're the perfect man able also to bridle his whole body. So what do we conclude from that? That everybody at some point, teachers included, pastors included, are going to what? With, with our tongue? Yeah. Say things that... We want to take back, uh, have to ask for forgiveness for what we say. Uh, hopefully it's not intentionally in error. That's kind of a different subject. I mean, hopefully it's not. But again, all of us uh, are, are at times say things that, you know, in retrospect, uh, we say, oh, I shouldn't have said that. That wasn't good. And, and have to go back and ask for forgiveness, right? And so it's just one of these things. Now, James is going to go on and really bring this out. And again, there, there must have been in, in, his, in his hearers 
uh, those received his epistle, there must have been a problem with this, because he takes quite a bit here to go at this. So notice in the verses that are coming now, he makes the argument that the tongue is, a, when you think about it, a relatively small, at least size-wise, member of our body, right? Compared to arms and legs and everything else. Uh, so it's a small part of our body, but it has great power or great influence. And notice here, Paul is going to make three comparisons to kind of bring that fact out, three uh, analogies. He says, if we put bits into the mouths of horses so that, we, that they obey us, and we guide their whole bodies as well. So what's the point? The, the bit that goes into a horse's mouth is rather small by comparison, right? And yet the big horse is influenced, and, and we can guide the horse with that bit no matter where we want it to go. So small, but has great power okay, to guide an entire horse. Now, next, next comparison. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder, wherever the will of the pilot directs. So again, the, the ship being you know, huge and a relatively small rudder guides the entire thing. Very powerful, though yet physically much smaller than the ship. Uh, and then, so also, the tongue is a small member yet it boasts of great things. In other words, it has great power. Now, uh, maybe one other here before we talk about this. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. So again, a small little, you know, you hear these stories about a campfire, a little campfire that's left unattended, and winds come along, and before you know it, there's a blaze, acres are going up, and so on. So Paul has made this argument the tongue, relatively small, boasts great power, has great ability, okay? Now, is the tongue a problem just out there in the, in the outside the church, or can the tongue be a problem even within the church in some cases? Both. Yeah, it's, it's, we should not think that once we uh, come into the church, that somehow the tongue is completely control, under control and all of a sudden is only uh, sanctified because we know that we are, as Christians, at the same time saints who are forgiven by God, yet at the same time what? Also sinners. Unfortunately, we still carry around that old sinful nature. I like sometimes to think about two different ways. Now, now we're talking on the negative side. We'll get to the positive side in just a moment. But on the negative side, I like to think of sometimes of two ways to think about this. There is the direct use of the tongue that can be a problem to someone when we're speaking directly face-to-face -face with them. And then there's the indirect use of the tongue when we're not speaking to them, but we're speaking about them to someone else, right? So the direct, you know, sometimes we say something to someone and I have to say, many times, it's, we don't think about the implications of what we're saying. So that's an unintentional thing. I didn't mean to hurt their feelings. I didn't think of how that might be received by them. And I say something that, you know, is either careless or I should have thought better. Uh, just totally didn't think of that when I, when I said it to them, that they might be offended because of something. And then yet there are other times we know that when things get heated, 
and words are exchanged that I do know what I'm saying, and I'm saying it anyway, right? And so those are the times where we really have to later, hopefully, go to that person and say, I really want, I want to apologize for what I said to you. That was not, was not right. That was not a good thing for me to do. And hopefully there is forgiveness. Um, but then I think probably a bigger issue is the indirect use of the tongue, right? And the way we can tend to talk about someone else or gossip about someone else. And I've always wondered, you know, you think about this, why is it, number one, why is it that we are so attracted to hearing gossip about somebody else? Do you ever think about that? What makes it so enticing or alluring to hear gossip about somebody else? Makes us feel better, superior, right? Yeah. Boy, oh boy. You know, I'm glad I'm not like that, right? And, and so there is that sense of, of feeling superior when we hear of somebody else's uh, misfortune or, or something they've done uh, that, uh, you know, makes us feel above the, it all and above them. What, why is it so enticing to be spreading gossip and to be the one actually speaking it? Yeah, what does that do for us? We're in the know, and we've, when you think about it, it's all self-centered again, isn't it? That we know something, and we will be the center of attention. Everybody will be listening to every word that we're saying, okay? So when you think about it, what's behind this uh, is, is all kind of self-centered, isn't it? And so often, you know, do we actually know that what we're saying is true or not? Uh, when somebody starts off a sentence with, you know, I heard, that's immediately, you know, from whom, and, you know, do you know that it's true? Secondly, even if it is true, is it really necessary that everybody else has to know about this, you know? Uh, is it helpful to anyone else to know about this or not, right? And so the, the, the tongue, again, can be such a powerful thing in a negative way. And let's be honest, Satan would like nothing more within the body of Christ to see us divided one against the other. And the tongue can be such a powerful instrument in doing this so that, you know, people are, are no longer together but are are separated because they're talking about one another remember luther's explanation uh to the uh eighth commandment thou shalt not bear false witness we should fear love and trust in, we should fear and love god that we may not deceitfully belie betray or slander our neighbor right but speak well of him defend him and put uh, the old translation was Put the best construction on everything. I think the new translation is something like explain everything in the best possible way or something like that. Um, so, you know, Luther's talking about slandering, betraying someone. If they tell you a secret or something in confidence and you go out and tell everybody else. Uh, slandering, simply uh, taking their name uh, and running it through the gutter. But then let's talk, uh, talk on the positive side now, right? But defend him. So in other words, if you're in a conversation 
and somebody, especially one of your brothers and sisters in Christ, is being kind of run down, uh, there's an opportunity for you not to just remain silent, but to step in and say, well, wait a minute, you know, is that really true? I wonder, I, I've seen this or I've heard this. Defend him, speak well of him, so not to pile on, but rather, you know, speak well of that person. Now, what does it mean, let me uh, ask you this, what does it mean to put the best construction on everything? Or a new translation, explain everything in the best possible way. If you're in a situation and you can either assume the worst about something or the best about something, what should we do? Assume the best about them, okay? Assume the best. Until, unless you find out that the worst is actually true. But aren't there so many situations in life where something happens or we see something and we can either assume the best or the worst about someone, right? So when you have that choice, Luther in the, in the commandment is saying, first and always, we choose the best about that person to explain whatever it is, whatever situation, uh, whatever we're, we've heard about them, we always assume the best until and if when we find out the worst, okay? So, um, you know, there are these situations that occur each and every day uh, in our lives, and we have a choice to make about how we're going to interpret them and what we're going to, especially what we're going to say to others about them. And again, that's a, that's a choice that we make, okay? All right. Uh, let's, uh, any, any comments or questions on this? Yes, Diana. Right. Correct. Yeah, Diana points out that there is, Christ even gives us this in Matthew 18, that instead of going and talking about someone first, we go to that person first, right? And uh, that's, especially if there's a, there's a disagreement or there's a, a conflict between the two of you, that you go to that person first. That's the first step that is to be taken, instead of going to someone else about that person, right? <laughs> Which is what we, temp we are tempted to do more often. Okay? Anything else? All right, let's finish this up uh, then in uh, James. Uh, he, he talks then about, again, uh, the, let's go to uh, verse 6. The tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue has set our members. Now, notice there's three things here. Tongue is in, in our body, in our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. <laughs> It's a rather negative uh, side here. Uh, the idea that, it, you know, you almost think of a, of a staining the whole body. You almost think of a piece of material, and you put something on it, and it stains the entire material. You know, it kind of absorbs through the entire material. So, again, when the tongue is sinning, it's not just the tongue that is impacted. It's like the whole body is, is sinning. Uh, setting on course, uh, setting on fire the entire course of life. Think about the future, uh, the uh, way life, lives can be impacted in the future, the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. So the source of that fire is hell itself. 
Now, there's a reference to creation here. Uh, every kind of beast and sea creature, reptile, has all been tamed by mankind. In the Garden of Eden, God said to Adam and Eve to have what? Dominion over the entire creation, having control over it. So there's sort of a contrast here. Look at all these wild animals have been tamed or have been, uh, can be tamed or have been tamed by mankind, yet no one can tame what? Our own tongue. You know, there's kind of the, the irony there in that. And uh, then uh, starting at verses uh, 10 and 11, we, or, and in 12 too, we see a contradiction there, right? That the same tongue that blesses God is used in cursing man. And again, that, that great contradiction in the use of the tongue. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not be so, absolutely. Uh, and then, you know, kind of two contrasts again. Does a, spring, uh, does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? No. So, you know, the implication is from the same mouth should not be coming both blessing and cursing. Just like the same spring doesn't put forth fresh water and salt water. Um, can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives or a grapevine produce figs? And, of course, the answer is no. It bears its kind. So, again, we as Christians should be bearing a good use of the tongue, good speech. And then finally, uh, neither, or, excuse me, neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. So the same sort of thing, okay? Not, not to be uh, contradictory or hypocritical as Christians, and especially the use of our tongue, okay? All right, let me stop there again. Any comments or questions on this? Yes. Right. Yeah. Uh, the comment was Luther referred to the book of James as the straw epistle. Uh, there are sometimes, especially today in the epistle lesson, where if you read James out of context, it almost sounds like it's advocating works or works righteousness over and against faith. And that's the main reason that Luther referred to it as the straw or the kind of weak epistle. And yet, when you read James in context, even, even like the end of today's uh, epistle lesson, you know, uh, I'll show you my faith by my works. In other words, he's not contradicting the fact that faith comes first, then comes good works, works that are actually righteous and good in the sight of God. So in the, in the, in the context of things, James is really looking at not just faith, but is assuming there is faith in Jesus Christ. Now, how do we live this out? We don't show partiality. Today's epistle lesson, you know, when people come in. We don't misuse our tongue in the way the pagans do, the godless do. So, yeah, there's, um, I, I've always looked at James as more of the, now how do I live out my faith, you know, as a Christian? But again, some people will take verses out of James, out of context, and want to support the idea of a works righteousness. And we would say, no, 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 you can't do that. You've got to read James the whole, you know, within its context. Okay? Yes, Jim? Does, does any of that tie into, uh, like, certain, you know, monks or whatnot who have a vow of silence? Ah, that's good. Good question. Uh, the question uh, Jim asked was an excellent one about what does this have to do with monks and a vow of silence? 
Uh, I think they, the monks who would go off in silence would probably point to verses like this and say, I'm going to withdraw so that I, I only uh, pray, praise, and give thanks with my tongue and take a vow of silence so that I am very careful never to offend anyone. Uh, and as uh, uh, Dr. Bodie uh, pointed out, the monastic movement uh, had very, a lot of different variations, but there were some who did take a vow of silence. Now, uh, Luther was kind of big on, on kind of pushing back against something like that and saying that, uh, in fact, the famous uh, Luther quote was, a mother changing her baby's diaper is doing a better work than all the monks who have isolated themselves, you know, in a monastery. And, and part of that is the fact that uh, it used to be the, the reasoning was back in the Middle Ages, that if you went off in a monastery like that, you were sort of a, a cut above everybody else, and your salvation was never in doubt. Well, no. And, and, and remember, Jesus uh, you know, talked about being, about being in the world, but not of the world, not, not withdrawing from the world, necessarily. But yeah, I, I think they probably, would point to, they probably would point to this as supportive verses for themselves. Okay, anything else? All right, let's move on to the gospel lesson for next Sunday. And this is from Mark chapter 9. We won't read through this first because we're kind of getting short on time here. Um, so verse, uh, chapter 9, Mark 9, starting at verse 14. And when they came to the disciples, they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. Well, we've got to stop right here. Who is the they came to them, well, right before these verses, the transfiguration took place, okay, in the Gospel of Mark. So you got the transfiguration has just happened, and who was up there on the Mount of Transfiguration with Jesus? Peter, James, and John, right? The three, the three disciples who are always sort of the inner circle, they're always around when something big happens. So they're coming down now from the Mount of Transfiguration, they've experienced that, and here's what they run into. They saw a great crowd around the disciples, and the scribes were arguing with them. Well, we don't know quite yet what they're arguing about. We're going to probably uh, pick up on this. And immediately, all the crowd, when they saw him, meaning Jesus, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. So they, they see Jesus. And it's sort of like they almost leave the disciples behind and they go up to Jesus, right? <laughs> the disciples are left behind. Uh, and they asked him, verse 16, uh, I'm sorry, he, Jesus, asked them, what are you arguing about with them? Now, did Jesus know? Yeah. He's gonna let, but he's going to let them verbalize it for everybody, okay? And verse 17, and someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. Okay, so this guy has a son, and he brought him to Jesus. What was the problem? Jesus wasn't there. He was up on the Mount of Transfiguration with a disciple, or with a Peter, James, and John. And so he brought him. And interestingly, what does this spirit make this boy do? First of all, there's other things, but he makes him mute unable to speak. Kind of interesting, because in a lot of places, uh, evil spirits are just the opposite. In fact, they even, they even address Jesus and identify Jesus in, uh, as the Son of God, and so on. 
Okay, but this one makes him not able to speak. Verse 18, and whenever it seizes him, it throws him down and he, formed, he, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. What does that almost sound like uh, happening there in modern day? Some sort of seizure, an epileptic seizure and so on. Uh, but I just want to caution here that, uh, you know, some people, uh, Pastor Thompson, I think, even had this in his sermon last week, that, you know, a lot of people deny the existence today of uh, demons or of Satan or of hell. The Bible never denies this. In fact, it takes it for granted that all these things exist. And so, uh, you know, we should uh, not be dismissing that as, oh, that was just some, uh, you know, elementary, not as sophisticated as we are time back then. No, uh, it's very real. In fact, I've often thought that that's, that's certainly what Satan wants us to do, is dismiss all this as, as not real and nothing we have to be concerned with. So, and... Uh, just think of the way the father, this boy's father, must have felt. You know, it's easy for us to read this and just kind of be matter-of-fact about the symptoms. But think about this, and we're going to learn in just a minute that his son suffered from this his entire life. So there was never a time when this wasn't the case, okay? So going on now, uh, verse, uh, so I, uh, in the middle of the verse there, so I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. It's kind of interesting, in Mark 6, uh, 13, the disciples were able to cast out demons. And, uh, in fact, they seemed like they got pretty, uh, pretty proud of this, pretty confident of this, that they were able to cast out demons. Here, they could not do it. And you've got to wonder if the argument wasn't over something like uh, how to cast out demons. Or, why can't you do this? You know, you've done it before. What aren't you doing right here, disciples? So we don't know what they were arguing about, but it might have been exactly that. Okay? So the guy comes. He wants to bring his son to Jesus. Jesus isn't there. Jesus is up on the Mount of Transfiguration. He comes to the disciples, asks them to cast out the demon, and they can't do it. Okay? Going on, verse 19. And he, Jesus answered them, O faithless generation. How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. So Jesus here, just making an observation about the lack of faith, and it's interesting, we don't know if he's talking, it seems like he's talking in general about the generation, the people at that time, having no faith. Maybe the implication here, if there was faith, the demon would have been cast out. We just don't know for sure. He's certainly making a generalization here. So he brought him to me, and they brought the boy to him. And when, he, when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. So the demon is not going to go down without uh, making a huge scene here. Uh, not going to go easily, you might say. He knows, he's got to know he's, he's defeated. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. Now, why would Jesus ask that question, how long has this been troubling him? Others can hear, yeah. There are, there, it seems, there are certain times when Jesus heals somebody or, um, you know, casts out a demon where 
we find out how long this has been afflicting him, right? Like the disciples come on, the man who has been born blind, right? Uh, the woman who has had the issue of blood for 12 years, right? And has spent everything on physicians. One point here. You, you certainly have to conclude that this isn't just something that just came on and might be running its course with this boy, see? So it, it, it does away with any kind of thinking that this was just a temporary condition and, oh, Jesus just happened to come upon him at the right time and, you know, just circumstantially healed him of this. No. You know, his entire, from childhood, he has had this. And verse 32, and it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. We can read right over that verse, but think of the cruelty of that demon. Has periodically thrown him into fire and into water as if to kill him, but hasn't what? Hasn't actually killed him. Has kept him around to torment him more. Time after time after time. So you see how cruel and demented this demon is. Okay? Um, we got to hurry up here. <laughs> um, but if you can do anything, have compassion. That word for compassion is that word swagsna. It's the deep-seated compassion in, the, in your very gut for something. Have compassion, notice, on us and help us us. Again, the father is tormented by what's happening to his son here as well. And Jesus said to him, if you, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Again, faith receives the gifts that God gives. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. Famous quote in the scriptures. Why might the father have had unbelief? Because he's tried so many times to get his son cured. I believe, help my unbelief, or help my doubting, help me not to doubt, right? We could talk about, a lot about that. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, we don't know if Jesus took this boy uh, and father aside here, or maybe just more people came and noticed Jesus was there, but a big crowd is running up, and notice Jesus is going to do this right away. It's almost in Mark as if there's a connection between the great crowd coming and Jesus moving into action. Theory being, they didn't want the demon to have a bigger audience and, and, and show off uh, even more. So uh, when he saw the crowd, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to the mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. Notice the authority that Jesus has over the demon and assuring by never enter him again, ensuring that this is a permanent cure, not just something temporary. 26, and after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse. He was just exhausted uh, after what the demon had done to him, so that most of them said he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him up, and he arose. And when he entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? <laughs> And he said to them, this kind, so we learned there are different kinds of demons, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. And you've got to wonder there, did the disciples really ask God in prayer to cast out that demon? Or were they just uh, trying to do it on their own authority? 
which would explain why they couldn't do it, right? All right, we are out of time. Let's close in with the benediction. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen. Thank you. KFUO, a click away, 24 hours a day. Originating from the studios of KFUO Clayton, St. Louis, the messenger of good news.